0: Our Father, we thank you for this new year that you've granted to each one of us. We thank you for the time which we had to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though we know, Father, that it may not have been the day nor the hour in which he truly was born, uh, it's the time in which we commemorate that birth. And as we look towards the months ahead of us, Father, we trust that you will be our strength and our shield that we in turn will be effective as children of the kingdom of God. We submit to you. We ask you to guide and to direct. I pray that you'll bless us here in this class as we study, now beginning, uh, begin our study of the life of David and the kingship of David, that you will direct us in our understanding of how you used him in a mighty way and how he speaks to us even as a type of Christ. Our Father, we ask that you will touch our president now, be with George Bush as he leads this nation, that he will seek divine counsel, that he will study the Word of God and be, uh, live according to what the Scripture teaches a man of God should be, that he will listen to the men and women around him that have wisdom to share, and, Father, that he will make right decisions. We particularly pray for our men and women in Afghanistan and in this whole anti-terrorism work, that you will grant protection to them, and Father, we ask that out of all of this warfare will be born an opportunity for your church to grow. We pray for the Afghan church, as small as it is, there are believers there in that country, and we pray that you will give them wisdom, that you'll protect them, that you will cause their lives to uh, be of such magnetism that others will be drawn in to the faith of Jesus Christ. Father, we just commit our hour to you now. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I've given to you this morning two pieces of paper. One piece of paper is the outline for what we'll be doing beginning today. The other piece of paper is this one. This is something I made up uh, years ago when I taught what is called Through the Bible in One Year. (laughs) (laughs) You may believe that's impossible for me. One day a 1000 But there is an actual program out there that you can get the, uh, a binder with all this material and, and you can teach through the Bible in one year if you follow it. Anyway, I, I developed this for that. And what it does is, on a single page, It summarizes for you the eras in the history of Israel, beginning with the Exodus all the way until the time of Christ. At the top, these are the years. They're all BC except the very right end where you move over into the first century AD. All of this is BC. Uh, You have at the top here the parallel pagan, if you will, kingdoms and empires, the Egyptian New Kingdom, the Neo-Assyrian and so forth. You see those across there. And then these are the eras in Israel. The theocracy, which was the era of the judges, the team, The united monarchy, which is what began with Saul and was continued through David and Solomon. Then the divided monarchy, which is what you read about particularly in the books of the kings. Uh, then the exile, the Persian period, when the Persians allowed the Israelites to return, to rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, but they were, under, they were part of the Persian empire. And, and then the Greek era after Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire and and then the uh, Hasmonean when Israel had a brief period of relative independence, at least they broke free from the Greek authority for a period of time and then of course the Roman uh, Imperial period which carries on into as far as Israel's concerned uh, till the destruction of the nation in the second century. and then you find the uh, the eras spe- specify, like the era of the Judges, and, the, and a few of the Judges are listed there. And then the United Monarchy, we've talked about Saul. We're going to be looking at David and then ultimately at Solomon, and then the divided kingdom and so forth. Over here at the bottom, you have the major books and the minor books listed. For example, Judges covers this area, the book of the Bible called the Judges. First Samuel, this era right here, Second Samuel right there, and so forth as you go to your right across there. And then you have the prophets down at the very bottom turned the other way. Well, you have Ruth and Job, psalms, other books, but also the prophets, major and minor, are are fitted approximately where they were in the time period. And so you can see, for example, during the era that 2 Chronicles covered, you had Solomon writing the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. You had uh, the prophets, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, and so forth. And so this, this kind of tries to weave it all together in, in a single piece of paper for you. So I hope that will be useful. If you keep it with your material, if, if you carry any material around, but if you keep it with you, uh, it'll help as we proceed with David, Solomon, and as the Lord may provide uh, into the divided kingdom and uh, the various kings of that period of time and the great prophets like Elijah and Elisha and, and so forth. I feel that it's really important for us. Obviously, I have felt this is important or wouldn't have done this now for uh, more than 10 years, but the study of the Old Testament is vastly neglected in most church settings. And that's why uh, I've, I've focused on, on that. And I feel that in the Old Testament, you find all of the truths that are also in the New Testament. It's, it's not like the New Testament comes along and opens a whole new door. Yes, it does in terms of the life of Jesus Christ and the manifestation of Messiah. But, of course, he was predicted, and, and so many Old Testament scriptures point, pointed towards him. And, and, and so the, the basic theology of the New Testament is in the Old Testament. And I think it's very important for us to see that. It helps us to understand the background. Paul tells us that the Old Testament was our tutor. It was our teacher so that we would know why we needed a Messiah, why we needed a Savior and, and how uh, the church would be born. The scripture says in Paul's writing that all scripture is given, uh, is inspired by God and is given for doctrine and reproof. Not just Colossians and Philippians and you know, uh, Philemon or whatever, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus and all of the rest of them as well. So we are going to continue to, to, to do this. Actually, in the Bay Area, I taught this program, not as in much detail, actually, as I've done with uh, this particular class, but I actually did get into the New Testament <laughs> before we got transferred up here, but didn't get far. Well, actually, it was only about 10, <laughs> and we've already done 10 <laughs> in this class. You you might not believe it, but we started First Samuel almost 17 months ago. <laughs> I, I always know that it's been kind of a long time when I look at how many tapes it took to <laughs> to record the book. My wife keeps all the tapes uh, in in a, in boxes and. <laughs> you now, don, in a way, it's a poor, seriously it's a foretaste of heaven to me because studying the scriptures is a timeless thing. Yeah. Never exhaust the riches of it. Somehow this is symbolic of that to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the last few days, this song's been running through my mind that God's word is like a deep, deep mine with jewels rich and rare. Some of you may remember that back in the days when we sang hymns. (laughs) Only I was singing it wrong at first. (laughs) My wife reminded me. But then I, I figured it out. And then it also goes on to say that the word is like an armory where soldiers may go to repair. And, and that's really true. The Word of God is an armory where we go to repair ourselves from the battle and, and to continue to prepare ourselves for the next day of battle. Well, being a person who loves geography and, and history, detail kind of gets hung up with me, so <laughs> I can't just fly over it. Every time I think, oh, I'm going to move through this really quickly, you know. <laughs> it just doesn't happen because, oh, no, look at that, you know. So it's, it's really hard. So what we're doing today is we're beginning a study which I'm entitling David, Israel's Greatest King. And that's going to be our title that we will follow. It's going to be the study of Second Samuel, primarily, of course. As we noted almost 17 months ago when we began the study of 1 Samuel, that First and Second Samuel were originally contained on a single <laughs> scroll. Single scroll. Reminding you, of course, that prior to the second century A.D., um, all writing, most of all writing anyway, was done on scrolls, on pieces of papyrus or parchment that had been basically glued together and and run out on a big long scroll. If you ever want to get a view of an old scroll, go to Israel and go to the Shrine of the Book and there is the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls and it's unrolled all around the building you know? <laughs> and, and you get a sense of what it's like. In, in those days, you didn't carry a Bible to church. First of all, you didn't have a copy. And second of all, <laughs> you'd really want to know exactly where they were going to study today because you wouldn't want to have a cartload of all these scrolls carry around with you. We are so blessed to have the book form, Codex. Uh, which was developed in the second century with the double-sided pages and all so that we can put the whole bible in this little well some of you still can see even have book bibles that are much smaller than this you can stick in your pocket you know but uh, i haven't quite gotten to the large print yet but um, i'm headed in that direction i think around the around 200 B.C., the translators of the Septuagint, and we, we talked about the Septuagint for, uh, version before, the initial Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament, which was done in Alexandria, Egypt, they decided that the scroll was too unwieldy. And so they divided it into two pieces. And then they grouped these two, first, what we call 1 Samuel, with the books we call First and Second Kings. They grouped them together and called them the four books of the kingdom. That's what they did in the Septuagint version of the scripture. Now, Samuel's scroll was divided not at the midpoint. They didn't start at one of the scroll and go to the other end of the scroll and kind of measure back and cut it in half there. They went back to a place where there was a logical division. And the logical division was between the death of the first king of Israel and the Coronation, as you might think of it, of the greatest king, second king and greatest king of Israel. And so what that means is that 1 Samuel is longer than 2 Samuel by about 10 percent because it a little more detail given in, well, it goes clear back to, to, to Samuel's birth, of course, and brings us up uh, to that uh, point. 600 years later, when the whole scripture, both old and new, was translated into Latin by Jerome around the year 400, AD 400. He renamed the, well, the Samuel scrolls, he renamed them 1st and 2nd Kings. And then what we know as 1st, 2nd Kings became 3rd and 4th Kings. So you had 1st, 2nd, 3rd and 4th Kings. And, And that's the way it was in the Vulgate translation. About 500 years ago, Jewish and Protestant scholars decided that wasn't the best naming. And so they switched back to what we have today, First and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. And so that's what we have inherited. So we've inherited from the, the modern Jewish uh, Protestant translation. The, the Protestants have tended to stick pretty close to the Jewish rendering of Scripture and have gotten away from the Vulgate and some of the others because that was the, the, what became the Roman Catholic understanding of the Scripture. And as a result, most Protestant translations do not include the Apocrypha which Jerome was forced to include in the Vulgate, which he, he didn't want to because he didn't think that was part of Scripture. The, the Apocrypha, if you're not familiar with that, uh, these are the books like First and Second Esdras, First and Second Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, Bell and the Dragon, and there, there's about a dozen of them that were written in the intertestamental period. Uh, Dr. Walmark over here is the intertestamental scholar especially because he teaches a course in that, and he could give you a whole lot more detail about that. But the Protestants have tended to shy away from including those as part of, quote, Scripture, even though it is in the Anglican translation of Scripture. Also, as we noted at the beginning of our study of 1 Samuel, the authorship of First and 2 Samuel is primarily derived from Talmudic studies. The Talmud, the word Talmud means to study. The Talmud is a collection of oral tradition that was passed down by the rabbis for about 500 years until it was begun to be put in writing in the first century before Christ. And the rabbis came to understand that 1 Samuel, from the beginning of the book until the 24th chapter, was written by Samuel, and that the rest of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel were written by Gad and by Nathan, the prophets Gad and Nathan. And, of course, there is scriptural support for that. Let me go to 1 Chronicles 29, 29. We read, now, the acts of King David, from the first to the last, are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer with all his reign, his power, and the circumstances which came on him, on Israel, and on the kingdoms of the lands. So the Talmud scholars were not picking this out of the blue. They weren't just thinking, oh, let me think now. Who could have? No, Uh, they they get this from from the scripture and have confirmed it within their own uh, traditions. Not that we need their confirmation, of course, but it's good that that's there. The writings of Samuel, Nathan, and Gad were probably compiled into this scroll called the Samuel Scroll uh, during the great and glorious reign of King Solomon. Most likely it was during that time. In other words, in the middle of the um, 10th century before Christ would have been the time that the scroll was compiled. And whoever the compilers were put uh, Samuel's writings with with Gad's and Nathan's and into what we call the Samuel scroll. First Samuel, as you know, if you were with us uh, through that 17-month period, gives us a chronology of Israelite history for about an 80-year period. From about the, well, not from about, from the birth of Samuel all the way until the death of Saul, the first king of Israel. And we know that Samuel lived for about 40 years or so at least before he coronated or anointed Saul to become king. And Saul was king in Israel for approximately 40 years. So it gives this 80-year period, which spans most of the 11th century before Christ, the the 1000s BC, if you you will. Now, as we look at 2 Samuel, though, it's going to cover about a 40-year period, the period of the reign of King David. It actually begins slightly before David's reign, but not much. and and carries us pretty much through the reign of King David, which was, the scripture tells us, uh, 40 years long. He is Israel's greatest king, and as we see from uh, many places in scripture, particularly the Psalms, he was a type of Christ in his life and in his um, ministry. Uh, We have a parallel, by the way. Some of you may wonder where Chronicles fits in, and that's where this kind of gives you a, a picture of that. First Chronicles is basically parallel to 2 Samuel. 1 Chronicles pretty much parallels 2 Samuel. From the 11th chapter of 1 Chronicles to the 29th chapter of 1 Chronicles, you have a a record parallel to that of 2 Samuel. It's It's not a copy of 2 Samuel, but it's a parallel record, and it injects other information that we need from time to time, partly because the chronicler was a little more concerned with some of the spiritual aspects of things than were, uh, were the historians who wrote 2 uh, Samuel. Second Chronicles, then, you see, uh, parallels the kings. And so you have a double record here in, in Scripture, which is not unusual for the Jews, for the Hebrews. As we read the Psalms, how many times does the first line of a psalm say something, and the second line of the psalm says the same thing but a little bit differently, you know? Well, it's kind of like, if you don't get it the first time, maybe you'll get it the second time, you know? The Davidic kingdom, kingdom of David, arose at a time when the traditional dominant peoples of the Near Eastern world were in eclipse. And you see that a little bit. If you turn this little diagram like this, And you'll see the United Monarchy right in here, and you'll notice there are no solid black lines up the top indicating a great power. Here's the Egyptian New Kingdom, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Persian, etc. And there's a gap there. And that, I think, is, is very, very important. David could not have come upon the scene at a more propitious time in history to bring the Israelites to the hour of greatest glory. And in that, he is also a type of Christ, because the scripture says in Galatians 4.4 that God appointed this hour for the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. He didn't just put a history uh, diagram up up on the wall and close his eyes and throw a dart at it and say, well, that's where my son's going to go in. No. In the fullness of time, the scripture says in Galatians 4.4, God sent his son into the earth born of a woman. And so I believe David came at the propitious time chosen by God to lead Israel to its hour of great glory and of great power. So the 900s B.C., the first century of the first millennium before Christ, about 3,000 years ago, the two kingdoms of David and Solomon would literally shine like gemstones against black velvet. I don't know if you've ever gone into a jewelry store, and have them show you the jewelry, and you probably all have, and you know they have certain kinds of lights, and they have this black velvet, and I mean, those stones just you know, really. And of course, you take it out in broad daylight, and well, what happened, you know? It's not quite the same. But that's, that's literally what these two kingdoms look like. The Egyptian empire. Th- this is a pretty pathetic map, but at least you'll get the idea. You may not even know what this is. Just colored lines on, a, on the wall. But this, this is an attempt to show, I was strambling around this morning trying to find some map and this is the only thing I could, I could find. I have better maps at school but they're at school. <laughs> the, the green outlines the uh, Egyptian empire at its height. Egypt uh, possessed its greatest uh, hour of glory in terms of territory and political power about the time of the Exodus when Israel left the uh, nation of Egypt. And Egyptian power included all of what is today Palestine, all of what is today Lebanon, and much of what, was what is today Syria was all incorporated under Egyptian control. But by the time David comes along, that has decayed. Egypt has come upon an hour of, of financial bankruptcy, its uh, internal strife, uh, troubles with other African peoples, and as a result, the great empire has collapsed. And so all that's left are some of the social and, and uh, financial influences, maybe, of the Egyptians. But their political power is gone by the time David comes on the scene. Over here, which isn't well depicted, but this is the Euphrates River that goes out over here into Saddam Hussein's Iraq of today. That, that of course, was a, was, was a sort of a cradle of civilization, was the cradle of civilization, actually and had impacted the Holy Land on many occasions. You remember Abraham used his forces to chase after some Mesopotamians who had come over and wreaked havoc against uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. But this, in, during this period of time, Mesopotamia was in eclipse. There were no great powers in Mesopotamia. We are centuries away from the great Neo-Assyrian Empire, from the Neo-Babylonian Empire, both of which will have profound impact on God's people. I mean, the Assyrian Empire will literally shatter the northern kingdom of Israel and literally destroy it. And it's because of the Neo-Assyrians that we have this concept of the ten lost tribes of Israel. And then after that will come the Neo-Babylonian Empire and they will destroy Jerusalem. They will destroy Solomon's temple. I mean, talk about havoc. And, And they will cause the captivity to happen. And, and Daniel, and uh, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah will be all prophets of that, uh, of that era. And that's in the future. But the period we're talking about, hey, it's a, it's a hiatus there in Mesopotamia. Bill? Uh, you call us the Neo-Assyrian. <coughs> when was the... Paleo-Assyrian? Uh, it, it was back in a period from about 1100 to 1350 B.C. There was a period of time in which Assyria had the, pr- the earliest empire. It was a lot smaller empire. It was just within Mesopotamia itself. And paralleling it... The Egyptian. Yes, right. Paralleling the Egyptian period of time of the empire of Egypt. And same way with Babylon. There was an ancient Babylonian empire that existed back at the time of Abraham. And it collapsed around 1600 BC. And so the Neo is the new Babylonian, which was a far greater uh, empire as well. To the north, up here, you just barely see, this is the southern edge of Turkey and up in here is, is Turkey. That was controlled by an empire known as the Hittite Empire. The Hittites were a powerful Indo-European people who first introduced the use of iron as a metal. And the uh, Hittites established an empire that was, that was a rival of Egypt and they often fought each other right up here in Syria. That empire had, had lasted for a little less than a thousand years. And it had collapsed by this time, and and there was no longer any Hittite Empire. In its place had grown up a much smaller empire called the Frisian Empire. And not Frisian, but the Frisian Empire. And the Frisian Empire of King Midas fame, you remember the king of the golden touch? He was a Frisian king, although obviously he didn't actually have a golden touch. But that kingdom had very little influence, in fact, um, no influence in the power world we're talking about today. Further away, right over in here, you have the Greek world. The Greek world has already been in contact with this part of the world over here by this time. Uh, But the Greeks are in what is called the Greek Dark Ages, a period of time in which they literally claim that the Greeks forgot how to write. You might say, how in the world could that happen? Well, because the invaders who came in were barbarians, and they sort of like what happened in the killing fields of Cambodia. They looked for everybody who knew how to write and killed them. You know, because they wanted to kind of bring people back down to the more primitive form of life. And as a result, the great era of the Iliad, you know, the Achaean era, which was, was past and gone. And so Greece was in a, a dark age at this time and, and had very little contact at all uh, with this part of the world. And then Italy, which would have such profound influence over here at the time of the Roman Empire, was still made up of a bunch of primitive Stone Age pastoralists herders and and farmers mostly. It's the Latins are first coming in. Right about the time of David, the Latins are finally migrating into Italy from across the Alps. But Rome is still 200 years or more away uh, from even being founded, let alone becoming a significant city. So as you look at the big picture, that's the big power picture. The big powers are not there. So that's why I, I find it very interesting Uh, when you study the history of the world, that secular textbooks almost always have a whole chapter on Israel, and they have maps, even make uh, maps that uh, can be shown like this, and I would have brought one if I had been over at school, that that show Israel as the great kingdom of this time. Little Israel, you know. Uh, The great kingdom of this time, because, as I said, there's a dearth of other powers. Now, right-neighboring Israel... Up up here in this region, which today we know as Syria, uh, the Arameans, who are the ancient, Sir, uh, the ancient Syrians, Syrians and Assyrians, don't confuse them. <laughs> Syrians and Assyrians were both Semitic peoples, but they were different people, uh, totally different people. They spoke different languages, uh, different cultures. The Syrians, the Aramaeans, lived up in here and they were just beginning to develop a significant civilization and it becomes a bit dwarfed for a while because David will conquer Syria. And so the Syrians will be under his rule and Solomon's rule and as soon as Solomon dies they will flower. But right here along this coast there is a kingdom at this time called the kingdom of Phoenicia and the Phoenicians are beginning to flower. They're the ones who invented the alphabet and, and, and transmitted it over to the Greeks, and the Greeks modified it into the Greek alphabet, and ta da ta da 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 voila, we have what we have here. The Phoenicians are just beginning their, their era of great glory and power. About 100 years after Solomon dies, they will found a, f- a fabulous city over in North Africa called Carthage, and they found a lot of other colonies around the uh, Mediterranean world. But these great seafaring people will not be a threat to Israel because they will be allied to Israel. David and Solomon will make friends of the Phoenicians, especially the king of Tyre, and there will be um, trade between them and interaction between them. And so the uh, Phoenicians are not a, a direct threat to Israel during this time. So what's left? The Philistines. They're the only ones who are left. The, the people who live down on this uh, coast down here, who at the time we ended First Samuel, have defeated Israel. They've killed Saul, and they've killed Jonathan, and they've, they've cut completely across the land. And so it might seem that Israel's about to be swallowed up, but that's when David comes. And throughout the reign of David and the reign of Solomon, the Philistines are under Israelite hegemony. And they are not a direct threat. Uh, to the existence of the Israelite state. But what is interesting is that the Philistine name will be perpetuated. As you probably well know, the name Palestine comes directly from Philistine. And it was applied to the land by the Romans because the Romans were so sick to death of the Jews and their revoltingness that they threw them out in the second century and made Jerusalem into a pagan city called Alia Capitolina, built a pagan uh, temple right on the top of the Holy Temple area, and named the country Palestine. And so it has remained to this day. And the Philistines, of course, have long been gone. Where are descendants of the Philistines? Are they Arab or what? Where are the descendants of the Philistines that they know? That is a very, very good question. That question has to be enveloped into the question, where are the Edomites? Where are the Midianites? Where are the Amorites? Where are the Canaanites? Yes, they have sort of all folded into this mass of people who we call Arab. The Arabs, of course, have their homeland down here in what we today call Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is named after the Saud tribe. The tribe that used to rule Arabia is the one from which we get Saddam Hussein and King Hussein (coughs) over in Jordan that was the Husseini Arabia before but they were kicked out by the Sauds and the Sauds rule it now but the Arab area here and because of the Arab conquest after Muhammad the Arab conquest of all this world here all those peoples have just been subsumed under the generic title Arab but if you go over there you do find they are tribally different from each other and just like the Afghani really numerous different people groups. But you cannot clearly identify them today and say, oh, you used to be a Philistine or you used to be an Edomite. At least as far as I understand. But that's that's a good question and it's always a kind of a troublesome question to us who studied the Old Testament. Where did those people go? (laughs) And what's interesting is, who is of all the people who lived during that time now still clearly identifiable? The Jews. And God, of course, clearly told them I didn't pick the great and powerful people, I picked the least of the people. If that doesn't proclaim the reality of the power of God, what does, you know? To take a nobody group and to keep them identifiable for thousands of years, where all the other groups disappear and are lost. Where are the Babylonians? You know, where are the Assyrians? Where are these great people? They're not to be found. So in the 10th century before Christ, Christ, we have an unprecedented period of time for the power and glory of the nation of Israel. Never again will will Israel possess as much territory nor control a relatively large amount of wealth. Yes, modern Israel, you might say, has more money than, than Solomon's Israel, but not relatively speaking, not compared to the rest of the world. And then, of course, influential. You mentioned earlier, at the time of the conquest, that uh, Israel never obeyed God in occupying the totality of the geography that God intended. Could David have done that? Should he have done that? Or was that responsibility history by his time? There are some who argue that David did occupy the territory. Because he did occupy to the Euphrates, which was one parameter. The other parameter was the river of Egypt. And the question is, what did that mean? To those who adhere to the Nile, then David never occupied there. But to those who say that it is what's called the brook of Egypt, then David did occupy to that. And so if that's true, then David did occupy the land that was given to them, with the exception of the Phoenician territory. So let's let's read the first 10 verses of 2 Samuel, so at least we get a a taste of the uh, book. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. And it happened on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp of Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. Oh, you know, I'm just wandering around, happened to be on the mountain. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And, you know, which is a very unlikely (laughs) situation, but anyway. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I said, Here am I. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand by me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord." We're, we're not going to have time to develop this passage this morning, but, but what we do find here in these verses is a divergent story from what we read in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. There are some parallels, but there's, there's differences there. And the question is, which is the true picture? And we know, of course, if, if you read through the first chapter of Second Samuel, that this Amalekite has come to the wrong man with his story. <laughs> because David will not be pleased at all to hear that this man dared to slay Saul. Well, the reality is I don't believe this man slayed Saul. He's making up this story. But he will pay for his lie with his life, uh, which, of course, is uh, a commentary on lying if nothing else, that lying will bring in the ultimate destruction. But, but we need to look at the details of this because it reveals to us David, uh, a man who is going to be so different from Saul that it's as great as day is from night. Oh, he will make his mistakes. And one of the things we're going to be getting to very quickly is when you get into the third chapter, Uh, of 2 Samuel, discover that all of a sudden, David doesn't have two wives, he has six wives. And it goes on from there. And so, obviously, David has a problem. And and David is, is not a man of perfection. But that's what I like about the Bible. It holds up individuals to be emulated who are like you and me, people of weaknesses and failures. And that that makes it more real to us and gives us the ability to, to think of them and to think of the fact that God can help me and God can work in me and God loves me. That's very, very important, to take the transcendent God and put him in our hearts. And that's what we can see as we look at these lives.